Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's the Autosport Podcast. We analyse Lewis Hamilton to understand the elements that make him a five times world champion. Lewis Hamilton securing his fifth world championship has generated huge amounts of analysis of his strengths as a driver. But given the magnitude of his achievement, it's the right time to try and evaluate him. But rather than just waxing lyrical about a driver who everybody, well, with a few exceptions, recognises as a great, we thought we'd try and break it down into discussion about the various key skills that make up a racing driver and even assign a mark out of 10 for each one. I'm your host, Ed Stewart, and joining me to run the rule over Hamilton first is Ben Anderson. Now, you've been working on some new projects recently in your your new role as F1 racing editor. So is, is Hamilton's success proving to be a good topic to get your teeth into? Absolutely. Um, probably Lewis Hamilton's finest season in Formula One. Probably the last two, actually, have been his finest ever. He would certainly say so. And, both, uh, both of them have been his finest season. Yes, his finest seasons, plural. Um, obviously, you can only describe one as his finest season in isolation at the time. Uh but yes, um, big talking point for us. Um, lots of content in F1 racing coming up over Christmas, celebrating Hamilton's fifth world championship and the vanquishing of Sebastian Vettel in their battles of the last couple of seasons uh, and various other things as well. Um, yeah, fascinating driver and character. 
Exactly. And that's what we're going to delve into a bit more in the, in this podcast. Also joining me is Glenn Freeman. Now, you've achieved something of a first in this podcast. In the, this is to my knowledge anyway. Someone might have done it in secret, but you've actually gone out to acquire special podcasting socks. I've actually acquired wow. seven pairs of socks this morning. Um, that's I'm, a, only that's wearing, overkill. I'm only wearing one of those pairs at the moment. The other six are over in my bag. That might almost be one for every category we're going to look at in Hamilton's driving. Although we might have. I eight. mean, I can change between categories if you want. If you, if you think you can turn my mic down so you can't hear me changing my socks, we can do that. We because could award Hamilton socks sock rather ratings. than marks out of ten. Yeah, mm. one or two socks. It's not as versatile as a Up to seven, though. That's our limit, isn't it? Unless, unless we chip in socks and your pre-existing well, socks. Well, actually, you have actually... I do have wet socks as well, which is the reason we're having this conversation. And actually, that's eight pairs of socks, which is a total of 16 socks, which is a very flexible number. So, uh, yeah, that's a good... That's socks a good out of 16 for Hamilton. There we go. Well, I think we've got a very good uh, mechanism there, but at least we know that uh, Glenn has dry feet for the uh, purposes of this. Right, well, let's really get into Hamilton now. The first category is speed. Ben, we're defining this as basically qualifying single lap speed. Lewis Hamilton's pace over a hypothetical lap. Where would you place Hamilton on this? This this is quite a straightforward category, I think. Yeah, you'd have to place him right at the top in this category. Um, I mean, he has the pole record in Formula One um, for a start, and that's a pretty good statistical indicator of his abilities. Um, but he is capable of extracting special lap timers at the peak moment of pressure in Q3 and not necessarily when he's driving the best car. Um, I'm thinking of Silverstone this season where he was physically shaking after he got out of the car. Um, the lengths he went to, to, to find performance and see off the challenge from Ferrari and Singapore, uh, subsequently, um, a mind blowing lap, the sort, the sort of qualifying lap that we associated with Sebastian Vettel at his peak with Red Bull, I think, um, one that Hamilton probably can't explain himself and one that led Toto Wolff, I think, to say afterwards it was the, the most impressive qualifying lap he'd ever seen. I think that's the thing, is that you judge these things not on what he's doing week to week when he's got the best car and not much competition. You'd look at the times when he hasn't had the best car and he's achieving perhaps more than you'd consider the benchmark performance. And we've seen a lot of that recently. You could argue that even his lap in Mexico really was better than what the Mercedes was capable of on that weekend so he's just he's proven recently that he's consistently capable of dragging that little bit more out of the car than most drivers will be able to find you can't as I know you always say it you can't outperform a car you can't drive beyond its limits for a whole lap certainly but Lewis is certainly getting closer and closer to the absolute limit of a car even when it's difficult to drive and yeah the, the, the Singapore lap was the one that really stood out for me because that was still when we were in the phase of this season perhaps turning towards Mercedes. But after the brilliance of Monza, we needed, or Mercedes needed something else to just keep tipping the scales in their favour. And it was that Singapore lap in particular that I think just rammed home that Hamilton and Mercedes were now becoming an unstoppable force in this championship. Well, the interesting thing with the Singapore lap is in terms of the opposition, while it was a big advantage, Verstappen was on a lap before he had some engine stutters that, that was potentially on par or maybe just a fraction behind. But the thing that really impressed about that lap is 
he did a 136 015 Hamilton. Mercedes reckoned that the pace was in the car was probably a 36.6, 36.5. Wasn't that exactly what Bottas did? Yeah, Bottas did a, did a 36.6, if memory serves. And Bottas has been actually qualifying quite well this year. On average, his dry qualifying is only about a tenth and a half slower than Hamilton. But, you know, that ability to really dig deep and produce a lap when it, when it matters, I think I'd agree in, in terms of the, the Mexico lap, probably shouldn't have been ahead of the Ferraris. And that, that makes a big difference. I mean, in this track, position dominated era of Formula One as, as it has been for quite a few years now to have that that speed just to dig deep and really really go for it is, is essential I think the Bottas comparison is very interesting because this season and I think it was the same story last season as well Bottas starts off quite close to Hamilton pushes him really hard the average gap is very small occasionally he's ahead of him and then as the season goes on and the development war picks up and you're trying to find more and more performance and new ways to extract the performance from the car. The gap between Bottas and Hamilton just grows exponentially. And by the end of the season, it was the same last year and it's the same now. Bottas is suddenly going, oh, qualifying is my big weakness. What am I going to do? How am I going to strike back against Hamilton? I think that's the real sign of Hamilton's brilliance as a qualifier that where he starts the season is not where he finishes the season. He's always got extra gears to find. Well, it's interesting. If you look at the last six races, Hamilton versus Bottas, Italy, Hamilton was 0.362 up, Singapore 0.687 up, Russia, Bottas was ahead by 0.145. That unusual smooth surface though, isn't it? Specialist. It's very, Bottas. it's a very Bottas-y circuit, that one. And then Japan, Hamilton 0.299 up, USA 0.379 up, Mexico 0.266 up. So, Absolutely bears out what you're saying that as the season's gone on, he's just become imperious and that ability to kind of just dig, dig and uh, dig that time out that they don't think's there, that the opposition doesn't necessarily think there makes all the difference. It seems to be in the high grip situations as well. You mentioned the anomalies there are Sochi and Mexico, which are both smooth surfaces. Um, where isn't so much abrasion, the tyres don't work in quite the same way. Bottas always seems to do that bit better compared to Hamilton when the car's sliding around more. But as the grip goes up and you've got to, to find where the performance is and lean on that, that's where Hamilton really, really shines. And I don't think there's many who have an answer for that. Yeah, that, that sheer pace is something that's been there right from the start in his first season against Alonso at McLaren. The team reckoned Alonso was the better all-round race driver, but Hamilton... He was the quicker sort of single lap driver, which is... It's actually been one of the things often said about a lot of drivers, and Alonso's the most recent example, where he's always been considered pretty much the all-round package, but it's often mentioned that if he has a weakness, it might be that ultimate single lap pace, because we all just associate with Alonso his relentlessness lap after lap after lap in a Grand Prix. That doesn't necessarily mean he's got that sort of turning 99% into 99999 which is really what we're talking about with Lewis. and Makes him a good sports car driver. It appears to, yeah. If only he had some opposition to drive against, we'd see how good he really was. <laughs> Once again, I've got to remind everyone that it's one of the most difficult Le Mans ever, most competitive Le Mans ever this year, according to uh, Fernando Alonso on his victory there. So uh, He did very well to beat all those LMP2 cars, yes. <laughs> and of course the LMP1 privateers. But anyway, so... Well, we're trying to assign a number out of 10. So for speed, I, th- I think we're probably 10 out of 10, really. Yeah, it's hard to there's, argue there's, with that, I mean, isn't it? They might, you, you might argue that a Verstappen is as quick, but there's nobody quicker, is there? Agreed. Okay, let's move on to racecraft, Glenn. Now, racecraft, we're defining as the kind of the, the regular wheel-to-wheel stuff, the judgment of your racing situations. And we're also kind of including in that, what we're just talking about there, your your pace during the race as well, and race management, all these these sorts of things. So slightly more multifaceted should we say so how does Hamilton stack up there it's an interesting topic and I think it's one where Lewis throughout his career has always been strong uh, in this regard you know he 
like so many drivers develop very good racecraft in karting. I think it's one of the important things you get from karting is there's so much wheel to wheel racing um, that you don't necessarily get in the early rungs of the single seater ladder where the cars can be quite difficult for, for racing and sometimes you're on smaller circuits. But then when we got to something like GP2, he was in the first era of GP2 car, which was a very raceable car. The, the, the action on track was fantastic. You have the reverse grids on in the Sunday races. And that, I think, allowed Lewis to showcase what he was all about before he even got to F1. Then in F1, overtaking is very difficult. So the guys who are good at it really stand out, whether that is Verstappen, Ricardo, And I believe that Hamilton is very much should be included uh, in that top tier of drivers who are spectacular. I think Ricardo is probably the best overtaker on the F1 grid at the moment. But Hamilton is capable of doing just as much. If anything, he's maybe mastered more than Red Bull drivers. He's mastered the art of playing the percentages a little bit more. And the, the best comparison I think we can make for racecraft this year is comparing Hamilton and Vettel. And how many incidents now has Vettel had in wheel-to-wheel combat? And I've always tried to argue against the suggestion that Vettel doesn't have racecraft and that his Red Bull championships were built on driving away from pole position and then just driving around at the front relentlessly. But he's almost damaging his own reputation, Vettel, at the moment by having all these clumsy incidents and not seeming to know where the limit is. And then the Austin race was a fantastic example, a fantastic contrast of the two because Vettel had a clumsy shunt with Ricardo where he spun. And then you had Hamilton and Verstappen, who were two absolute experts in racecraft, going wheel to wheel at the end of the race when the stakes were so high and giving each other just the right amount of room. Or as I think they agreed afterwards, maybe Hamilton gave Verstappen a little bit too much room was the conclusion they came to. But I think Lewis has really proven over the years in F1 that his racecraft is top notch. And I'd say looking back at his era against Nico Rosberg, we would often say that when they were head-to-head in battle, the differentiator would quite often, if it wasn't Hamilton's relentless pace that we've just talked about, it was his ability in wheel-to-wheel battle over Rosberg. And I think that was always an area Rosberg felt he had to work a bit harder at, particularly once he had Hamilton alongside him. The interesting thing about the Rosberg comparison is that once Rosberg realised that Hamilton was superior in that regard, he went to great lengths to try and improve, but in a way looked worse because he looked like he was trying too hard. You think of races like Hockenheim, I think it was 2016 when he got penalty for running Stappen, was it, off the track? And similarly in Austria when he and Lewis collided. That was just clumsy, wasn't it? Yeah. He, he just never could, he got the theory, but he just seemed to never quite be able he to put it He couldn't do it, it on practice. instinct in the way that the top drivers can. It's no. that, I tend to call it improvisation, the fact that now, sometimes you can plan out a move, but you can never complete it. You've got to be able to just make that snap judgment. And you, if you force yourself to being good at making a snap judgment, sometimes it, it does go wrong. And I think judgment is the key word. I think that's the bit about Lewis's racecraft that stands out. It's not that he's necessarily the best late break, although he would say he probably is. But you mentioned Ricardo; He's got to be in that category. We know that Verstappen can be as ruthless and as aggressive. But Lewis, maybe this has come with experience. He did have incidents in his earlier career, but he... He very rarely comes off badly in a wheel-to-wheel situation. He very, very rarely damages his car. Okay, there were some spectacular flashpoints with Rosberg, where that was usually because something else was going on, and they were they were in a, a mutual path of destruction rather than a you know a, just a brief moment of battling for position. Um, yeah, Lewis knows when to when to stick his nose in and when to pull out. I think Austin was a good example of. Um, 
knowing when to play the percentages when the title's not quite wrapped up. Although I find that quite interesting because I think there'll be an emerging psychological dynamic between Verstappen and Hamilton because Verstappen's the kind of driver at the moment where he's on the grid, where Red Bull are in the competitive picture, where he, he can just take risks and he can he can throw his weight around. And most drivers are coming off second best against him uh, because of that and because of obviously his, his excellent judgment and ability. But Hamilton hasn't really had the chance yet to go properly toe-to-toe with Verstappen on equal terms where they've both got the same amount to lose. And I just wonder with Austin whether that plays will play on Lewis's mind, whether he'll feel the need to, actually, I need to, to sort this young upstart out. Because at the moment, Verstappen will be thinking, well, every time I come up with Lewis, uh, you know, he's going to back off. But now the championship's settled, maybe that will, that will change. I, I think what we learned from Austin was that Hamilton, yeah, we, got, we, we basically got him to admit that he was driving with the championship in mind, which he and a lot of drivers don't normally admit to. And I think that was an example of how, mentally secure he was in himself and approaching that championship but I think Lewis would come away from that battle with Verstappen thinking I've left a couple of percent on the table there and I think he would have been thinking afterwards that yeah if I'd had to I could have done him it's probably a good thing to say that he was playing the percentages too isn't it as part of the psychological game with Max you don't want to say oh I gave it everything and came off second best you want to say oh yeah I gave it a go but it didn't really matter if I overtook him just to keep that seed of doubt in there. We should also briefly address just the general question of race pace, etc. because there was a time earlier in his career when there were races when, and a lot of people who did work with Hamilton will say sometimes this happened, there were times when he might go missing in races. I remember Jensen Button saying, well, sometimes you'd, be, you'd sort of be ahead of him and you wonder where he's gone because he was so quick in practice. And there were times when races got away from him and he didn't, and Hamilton didn't kind of get the best out of them. That has changed though, hasn't it? In he, terms of, uh, he has achieved, I would say, you no, know, we, we always talk about relentlessness with Alonso. I think Hamilton's starting to get into that same sphere. Yeah, I think he's addressed that weakness, if you want to call it that. Um, he has far, far fewer days where he goes missing. I think he still has a t- slight tendency when the race is really going away to to start getting a bit emotionally in the car, start losing the plot slightly. I'm thinking of Austria this year when they were having their um, hydraulic problems and you, you, you hear Mercedes team come on the radio and it's almost like they have to G him up again to, to get his head back in the game. Um, when, I mean, when that's something we do regularly see that I think he, I almost feel like in the race he likes, he needs to try and understand stuff sometimes. So it's like when you hear the strategy, it was like, well, how have we ended up here? What, why Why am I behind? He, he asks in a slightly, you could say, moany tone, but he actually asks very intelligent questions there where if you are a driver and you're just fully immersed in the piece of track you're on at all times, some of the questions he'll ask after pit stops or something like that do suggest that he's got a very good picture of the race, but there's a missing piece of information in his brain that he needs. We're probably skipping ahead a few, um, a few, a few categories here, Ed, but I think... A lot of the times when we do talk about these these other bits we're going to get to, and I agree on this relentlessness and race pace, when we think back to weaknesses Hamilton's got or has had, we're quite often going to be looking perhaps at that little dip he had in uh, in the McLaren years, probably the dip in form that ultimately led to him wanting to leave McLaren for Mercedes, which you know is a, a life and career changing um, decision that he made. So I agree that I think he's developed himself in this area and has got away from perhaps having those weaknesses that, as you say, someone like Button could perhaps expose when they were in the same cars. We don't really see that anymore, but I still think Ben's right that every now and then you do just see that he just gets, I think he just gets a little bit too frustrated. And whereas maybe 
Fernando Alonso could be that frustrated and keep driving flat out, almost out of belligerence. Well, he's frustrated situation. all the time, isn't he? Yeah, so he's yeah. driving 100% frustrated throughout. Yeah, I think we did see, and Austria is a very good example of that. Where, yeah, Lewis's head, I think, had gone in that race. So what number do we want to put on racecraft out of 10? I think the fact there is that slight, so maybe means that 10 isn't the... Isn't the right number? Are we going down to nine? Or? I think nine's absolutely fair. It's eight or nine, isn't it? Okay. Um, well, which depending is it, on though? how generous you're feeling. I'd, I'd say nine based on where he is now. If we're going across the span of his career, you might have to bring it down a little bit. But I think we're judging the five-time world champion, yeah, that's, Lewis, that we have today. Fair, nine. So, well, Ben, let's go on to the next category, which is technical. So we're talking about feedback, his ability to work with a team, you know, set up, progression through, through weekends, etc. That's. I guess this is the kind of thing that, evolves for all drivers through their career isn't it i think uh wouldn't have said lewis was probably the most technically astute driver at the beginning of his career you you probably know more about this ed because you followed him much more closely when he first came into formula one but i feel like that's that's the kind of attention to detail that he's focused on more and more as he's tried to find new ways of getting stronger i think He's realised, um, having come into Formula One as, as what you describe as one of these explosive natural talents, someone who's just leaning on their car control all the time, just trying to go as fast as possible every lap and not really worrying about too much else. He's evolved to realise that actually he can make his own life easier for himself if he pays more attention to these other aspects, works closely with the team, builds those. It's ultimately about building those relationships, isn't it? You, you engineer the car not so much as a driver from knowing everything about it and what does what and every single thing you change, but filtering out the stuff you don't need to know from the stuff you do need to know and being able to work really closely, collaboratively and quickly with the key people around you in your team so that they can get the car into the position that will get you to get the best from it. And I think that's where Lewis is really involved. He's always been a copious note taker. I think that goes right back to karting days, pre-telemetry days, where the only way you chart your progress with the with the setup is by writing everything down and everything you felt. He doesn't have the greatest recall, he would say he doesn't have the best memory, but I think he's he's learned to work with his own limitations and work much better with the team around him to get more out of the car. And you see uh you don't really see him get stuck through a race weekend. You know, he He's nearly always there in a, in amongst it in qualifying where you need the ultimate setup. And he's rarely beaten by his teammate, okay, on occasions. Um, you know, he doesn't have, you don't really tend to have weekends where you're reflecting on Lewis Hamilton race and saying, oh, I, I just don't know where I was. I don't know where the car was. Every Monaco so often 2017, probably the only recent high profile example of that where yeah. he and the team were completely lost but but usually the team is lost too that's yeah. what I always find is interesting it's not like you've got the car was there and the other drivers smashed it out of the park and Hamilton's nowhere normally if Hamilton's having a puzzling weekend the whole Mercedes team is having a puzzling weekend so you can't really put that down to his his lack of ability on the technical side I, I think Lewis is one of the drivers this is no secret that would happily get rid of the telemetry and data and everything that's in F1 now in those years where he was against Rosberg, it really grated on him, didn't it? That Rosberg could look at Lewis's data if he's half a second down and could probably find three or four of those temps just in the data and doing his work for him. Exactly, yeah. And I, I well, think. Well, I remember him, was it Bahrain 2014 when we were there? He had a bit of a, oh, well, you know, you have all these tricks and you go quicker and then someone looks at all your data. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing. I think in the first couple of years, at least, of racing against Rosberg, Lewis couldn't get past the fact that he had such a problem with that. But I think over time he learned from it thinking, okay, well, if 
if Rosberg can learn from this data to make himself quicker, I consider myself a better driver than him. So what can I learn? What more can I learn from this to make myself even better and put myself even more out of reach? And I think once he had that moment where he sort of came to terms with the fact that the data is there, other people are going to use it. Maybe I need to use it a bit more than in the past where I think he did just rely on prodigious talent and what we consider to be raw and natural ability, which I think in in our head, in the romantics head, just means flicking the car around and being quite quick and a bit leery at times. But Lewis has refined that and I believe he's learned that during his Mercedes years and probably as much as it annoyed him at the time, he, I think he has Rosberg to thank for that. And I think there's, I remember Ross Braun when he was still at Mercedes, he railed against the suggestion, didn't he, that Lewis didn't care about the, the debriefs afterwards and working with the engineers and going over the data and trying to improve himself all the time. And I think that it is an area where maybe the kind of laid back image that Lewis projects of himself out of the car has given some people the wrong impression that he's not that interested, not that focused when actually, you know, if there are, if there are meetings going on at the factory after a race weekend, Lewis is going to be front and center of those and leading those discussions and pushing the team very hard. Now, I don't think he's a sort of driver anymore that has to be dragged along by the team for working on the technical side of, making yourself a better driver and giving yourself a better car. It's interesting uh, you mentioned the, the perception because um, you know an upcoming profile piece on George Russell for F1 Racing Magazine that Scott Mitchell has written, uh, George talks about that aspect of Hamilton, how being ensconced as Mercedes reserve driver and junior, he's watched Hamilton at work and realised actually Hamilton works really hard. But he had the same preconception that, oh, you know, the top guys, it just comes naturally. They just get in and do it. And I think Kimi Raikkonen is a driver that kind of um, supports this kind of theory in people's minds that, you know, it's just about the driving and you don't really worry about anything else. And George said, actually, Hamilton works as hard as anyone. But arguably, that's why Raikkonen hasn't won a championship for 11 years. Precisely. I think I think with Hamilton, it comes in. So I think there's always, it's, he's never been a driver who's just not cared at all about the technical stuff. I just think it's that final really buying into it, leaving no stone unturned and just making sure that, you know, even if you're three tenths ahead, if you can find a way to be four tenths ahead, do it. Because the more margin you've got, Easier obviously, obviously 16, he had so many engine failures and that kind of thing. He kind of realised that you can't afford to have bad weekends. You've got to maximise your bad days as well because you might, you, you know, you might have 80 points swing against you through sheer luck. So you've got to get as many points as you as you possibly can. So I wonder if that's maybe it. But he does, the other interesting thing is this year, when he was talking earlier in the season, when they were struggling a bit with the tyres, he was always saying, no, no, we'll, we'll get we'll get there. I, I I know what we're working towards. And I think that's maybe the, the difference as well. There's kind of a slightly longer view of it being taken rather than if the cars are just not working this weekend. But it's like, well, I kind of understand the reasons for this and that's what we can work on. And yeah. I know the team will get there. So... I think and, and he in trusts a, Mercedes exactly. He? And in, we had and a bit in, of that in, in a, Canada this year, didn't we? Hmm. It was a bit. Lewis is always great in Canada, and Mercedes struggled. And I know Ed that you were following that sort of narrative quite closely that weekend. And the impression I think we all got was that yeah, Lewis didn't write that off as this is a bad weekend. We'll be all right next time. It was a proper right. We need to actually work this out. And yeah, looking at the, the season as a whole and the impact that could have had if uh, if he and Mercedes perhaps hadn't tackled it in the way that they did. I think it's about also about not getting too focused on because it, on that kind of weekend because sometimes you can just start cha- changing things and randomly trying things almost for no reason and some drivers have done that but I think he's able to kind of place himself into the longer term view and have faith in it because you know the driver does not engineer the car 
<clears throat> yes, it's good to have a driver with a little bit of understanding, but they're there to give the feedback and understand and work with the process, not trying to do it themselves. So he's, he's kind of got quite a good, good balance there. Where, where, sh- where should we put Lewis Hamilton out of 10 on technical? He's not the ultimate engineering driver. You'd never, I don't think he'd ever claim to be, and that's not necessarily a, a bad thing, but certainly very, very strong. And I think it's all around game. I'd say he's developed into a seven or an eight. Seven or eight, yeah. I was going to say eight, but maybe that's slightly generous. Well, you said eight or nine last time. We went with me saying nine. I said seven or eight. You said eight. So let's do eight. Let's round up eight. Okay. Right. The next category we're going for is confidence. Now we're defining this, Glenn, as basically that innate belief that you're able to do the job to deliver. I guess we've touched on it a little bit with this idea that he and the team would, would work through the problems this year and, and be strong. I mean, this seems like a strong suit and justifiably so. It is these days. This is this is one of the prime uh, categories, I think, where we can look back at certainly the 2011 dip in his career where mentally he probably wasn't right at the time. and Spent the, uh, whole, spent the whole half, second half of the season bouncing off Felipe Massa pretty much. Yeah, exactly. And Massa wasn't anywhere near as close to the front as he had been in 2008 when they fought for a championship. So, Was that uh, the same year he had the Ali G moment with Maldonado at Monaco? Yes, yeah. The, uh, I mean, that, that's a good example of a slightly ill judge comment that inevitably, uh, uh, of course, Pompey doesn't do, do that anymore. That's just experience, isn't it? Isn't it? Coming yeah, in. there's a bit of growing up there. I think we've all gone through a phase like that. But confidence, I think there is a there's a... There's a total self-belief there now and not just something that every, all sportsmen say. I, I, I think Hamilton does now believe that he's completely got Vettel's number. Um, he may not have necessarily, he might have had an inkling of that in 2017, but not been convinced. But now I think he's utterly convinced and he can basically walk around in the F1 paddock feeling 10 foot tall the whole time. Um, whether Max Verstappen or someone else in years to come will dent that confidence, we'll see. But I believe right now, it's, it takes a lot to knock his confidence and self-belief. I think Austria that we referred back to before probably is an example of how he can take a blow and it can still affect him. But again, it wasn't. there were no long-lasting effects from that disappointing weekend and the frustration that built up around him. So I think he's he's become very, very strong. And I believe, actually, the fact that in a way it was... I keep mentioning Nico Rosberg, but he's so significant to Hamilton's development as a driver in recent years, particularly in the Mercedes era. It ended up being Rosberg was the driver that cracked first mentally and was the one that retired after their 2016 championship battle. And arguably, if Rosberg had stuck around, Hamilton might not have. The relationship seemed to have got to that stage and Lewis, it's understood, was sometimes questioning how much longer he wanted to stick around and wanted to put up with this. And those aren't the feelings or thoughts or considerations of a man who is feeling on top of the world and enjoying what he does and knowing that he's getting the most out of himself all the time. I think the dynamic that we've got now with Bottas in the team, whether that's because Valtteri's a nice guy or because Lewis completely thinks he's got his number. Probably a mix, um, of, the bo- a mix yeah, of both. Yeah, has really helped Lewis as well. And one of the big things, obviously, that Mercedes have been very good at, probably much better than McLaren were, is how much sort of freedom they give Lewis away from the track and... I'm sure each new contract he signs probably has fewer and fewer sponsor days in it. Not necessarily because Lewis hates that stuff any more than any other driver. I think they all hate doing that, those sort of things. But it's that classic thing of keep Lewis happy when he's not at the track and he'll give you everything he's got when he is at the track. And he, if anything, he probably arrives at the races now even more focused. And I do dispute the claims that all these other things he's doing 
are actually distracting him from his driving. There's no evidence of that anymore. I mean, I know people at McLaren in 2011 did suspect there was something going on, but as Lewis himself has said, he knows what works for him and he knows... He's got a better of, idea now. He knows the work-life balance. And, and I, th- and I think there's no basis to any criticism on that. No, I think, no evidence over the last I, couple of seasons that that's I, a problem. And I think Mercedes has recognised that. And as you say, Glenn, they've given him the freedom because they know if they trust him, then he'll get more out of himself than if they try to mollycoddle him. They treat him, him like a grown-up, basically. They are, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's this. there's kind of those two key facets to it, really. There's the settling down of Hamilton within Mercedes, so losing the Rosberg element where you feel like your teammate's out to screw you over at every turn and you're not sure how the team sees you within that context. Both of those two things have gone. So he knows Bottas is a good guy and he can work with him, so tick. He knows Mercedes trust him and will let him do more of what he needs to do to get the most out of himself so he doesn't have to worry about his employers. And then the Vettel aspect is the interesting one because going into 17, he would have thought, oh, okay, so Ferrari competitive. I've never really gone up against Vettel properly. What's it What's it all going to be about? But I think that Baku race where Vettel lost the plot under the safety car in, in 2017, I remember being in Lewis Hamilton's press conference after that race and you could see the cogs whirring in his brain and him thinking, well, this is the first time this guy's cracked and that's really interesting. That's something I think he actually said that maybe is something to exploit in the future. And you just think, right, okay, I've that's something I've got over him. And I think he's banked that. And as you say, then this season, you've just seen more and more the unraveling of Vettel. And that's only given Hamilton more and more self-confidence that basically he's the best guy on the grid. And the, the only doubt now really is probably Max Verstappen, but until Red Bull till or if Red Bull Honda get into uh, a Mercedes-like competitive situation, we won't really know how Verstappen stacks up against Hamilton. But I think he'll relish that challenge. I think slightly digressing, related to that Baku thing, one of the things that was very good is that Hamilton quite quickly realised after the race that he didn't need to stick the boot in. What had happened absolutely spoke for itself. And I think the earlier Hamilton might have felt the need to engage in it, but he just sort of thought, well, I've got him now. I, I don't need to... Everybody could see what happened. I had no part in that. It was it was Vettel cracking, so I can kind of rise above it. Which in the in the same way piles more pressure one of onto Vettel. Favorite quotes. Which yeah. one? Rise above it from Cool Runnings. Oh, there we go. Yeah, yeah, there we go. Um, and and I think that also tells you about the confidence in his place as well, in his place in Formula One, and is that he doesn't need to perhaps feel like people are out to get him or anything. It's just like right, that happened. I'm in the right. Everyone knows I'm in the right. Bang. He dealt with it really well. And it, it was one of those things where I think, again, it's a maturity thing where he just realized, okay, you guys have got eyes, you've got brains, work it out for yourself. There's no, there's no need really for me to get involved in this. Vettel's hung himself basically. Yeah. And, it's, almost, uh, it's almost like a backhanded compliment that Vettel did that, isn't it? Because Hamilton can recognize, well, essentially I've pushed him to the point where yeah. he's lost it completely. So yeah. I, don't, I don't need to do anything more. Which is exactly the same as Rosberg retiring. I believe when Rosberg had a contract to keep going, I think mm. Lewis probably thought, okay, you've beaten me to this championship. I believe that's through luck because I had an engine failure in Malaysia and whatever else. But then it's taken so much out of you to beat me that you've left Formula One. And I think you could see he he, he looked re-energised when he came back for the start of 2017. So I think in terms of confidence rating out of 10, it's 10, isn't it? I don't know if there's any Especially now. I yeah. think he's he's in that like perfect circle, isn't he? Of- mm 
self-belief. So yeah, 10 out of 10. But I have to say one area where driver is not 10 out of 10 in confidence is in my team order racing manager game. Have you ever wanted to manage your own Formula 1 racing team? Build a successful car, issue tough team orders when needed. Now you can with team order racing, available on Google Play and the App Store. So give that a try. Now I have to say my team order racing manager... So it's not been an easy start to the season. Came into Formula One with very, very high hopes, but things have faded. I think those have faded a little bit now. But but I am starting to build up a little bit more confidence in the drivers because I have actually managed to start breaking into the points now, which is very, very positive. Although I have to say, I think I need to get a Lewis Hamilton into the team to take it to the next level. So that's what I'm going to be saying to the press in my team order, racing manager safe. Give that a download from the App Store and see if you can do a little bit better than me. Although I should add, there is light at the end of the tunnel. and I'm pretty confident that the first podium and win won't be too far away. Team order racing manager, Google Play and the App Store available now. The next category, Ben, it's kind of related to this. Unfortunately, these things don't necessarily box up quite is this, as many. Is this basically like, one category? And yeah, we're just talking at so, yeah. about it's one how category. good is he as a racing driver? It's a holistic approach. But we have broken it down a bit. And we're talking about psychological strength. Now, this starts to bring in, I mean, confidence is part of that, but also robustness, the ability to put mistakes behind you to prevent those mistakes happening in the first place, to avoid getting into those Vettelesque spirals. And again, 2011 springs to mind and that there were moments there where he seemed to be sort of cracking under pressure and early in his career like you will with any driver will make mistakes earlier on but now again he just seems to be there seems to be no way through the armour does there no I think it's very similar to what we've just been talking about the psychological strength that he's he's learned all those key lessons a long way hasn't he I think as Glenn mentioned earlier Rosberg was the biggest drain on Hamilton mentally in the past few seasons and Rosberg's retirement has re-energised Hamilton because he just doesn't have to worry about what that guy might be up to behind his back anymore. What What's he going to be hiding from uh, me? And we should say, Rosberg was a unique foe because he knew Hamilton so long. For so long, he'd raced with him. Knew how to push ages. his buttons, didn't he? Exactly. And, did, and did push them. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see whether a driver like Valtteri Bottas can, will, will end up maybe diverting towards those darker arts if he if he gets ever gets to the point where he thinks well the only way I'm going to beat this guy is to ape the Rosberg method and, and Rosberg would openly admit now that he he tried to play games with Hamilton to get the better of him and maybe that is the only way you can do it from inside the the same team but at the moment Hamilton doesn't have to worry about that so in terms of he doesn't uh, then therefore need to worry about his psychological strength. He He's strengthened by the environment around him as much as he is from his own self-belief, which we've talked about. You know, Mercedes gives him confidence. And and as the the situation of not having Rosberg there and having a driver that you don't have to worry about in that way means you you, are, you just are going to be stronger. I think it's, it's easy to forget that it did take Rosberg quite a long time to develop all those traits that cause Hamilton so many problems. The 2014 championship battle probably wouldn't have been one without a few reliability problems along the way for Lewis and double points keeping the championship alive at the end of the season. So and, think, and of course, we had the great Mirabeau moment in qualifying for yeah, exactly. And Spa collision. Yes, of course. Yeah. 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 So I, I think that um, Lewis went into Mercedes obviously the year before as well with a clear edge over Rosberg. And if you think that in in, in 2015 it wasn't really a contest at all and it was from that point that Rosberg had to rebuild himself and go again so arguably he needed three seasons to get there and Bottas has only had two so far so Bottas might be sat there now as we mentioned early in this discussion he seems to be getting further and further away from Lewis almost every time Lewis raises a bar he might now be thinking right if I'm ever gonna 
do anything here against Lewis. And if I am going to keep my drive um, longer term and not get replaced by Esteban Ocon, I've got to do something now. Like Bottas has got a choice to make. But in terms of Lewis and psychological strength, we're obviously going to be rating him out of 10 like we have with all the others. I think what we've discussed about Austria and just the way he got himself into a total funk during that race makes me think that this isn't one where we could necessarily give him 10 out of 10 because he's still shown that a situation started to get out of hand and rather than just making his comment and moving on he just he was he just kept going and kept going and I think there were a couple of races or, or one race maybe in 16 or 17 where I think he was driving around at the back and he'd had a problem and he just kept saying to the team like can we just retire can we just retire and it was all a bit sulky and I was thinking you've got a big car advantage here go and bag like three points or something out of it so I believe that it's very, very rare and you're not going to mark him down too much for it. But I still think every now and then, and this isn't a criticism, it's because he's human. Those those little moments just build up and are a little bit too much for him. Um, he still is still an emotional character, isn't he? Yeah. I mean, maybe not so much as Vettel in the car and certainly not, maybe not as much as he used to be. But Absolutely. Yeah, they can still... They can still get the better of him, and I, I guess that's you know mentioning the Rosberg dynamic, and then where the Bottas goes down that same route. I think that's so key because the people who've worked with Hamilton closely say that he he's totally straight. I, I think uh, one described him to me as not having a bad bone in his body. So that's not the kind of guy who's going to play games himself. And I guess in terms of psychological strength, it's how much we rate that willingness or ability to play the psychological games to try and destroy your foes i mean schumacher it's whether you consider that a positive or a negative negative, yeah yeah. we've referenced schumacher and you know schumacher's celebrations were often exuberant exuberantly designed to rub his rivals faces in it to to uh, further state his dominance over them and that's not really how hamilton plays things he plays with a straight bat he wants he i'm sure would want Formula one to be everything equal and the best man wins um, but of course, that's not really how the politics of it works. So I think he's super psychologically strong when everything is like that. But as soon as things divert off that path and go against him in a way he's, he's not really, he, he thinks it's maybe not fair or not just, then I think he can start to lose a plot a bit. And I think that's still possible. We haven't seen evidence of him being totally um, uh, able to shield himself from that kind of situation yet. Let's have a number then out of 10 psychological strength eight can we have a faster number Ben Glenn's, Glenn's weighed in with eight I haven't given Ben a choice I time. think seven. Ooh. just because the jury's still out in those particular yeah. circumstances so you can have the deciding vote Ed you're in charge of this podcast I, was, I, was, I would have leant towards the higher one but Ben brought in an interesting thing I wasn't really thinking about which is that ability to Finally. wage psychological warfare which Hamilton doesn't do now I think maybe that's not necessarily a weapon you might it might not be a weapon you respect using but i do think he doesn't necessarily have that in his armory or willingness to do it so it seems a little bit harsh in some ways to mark him down on that but i do think that's one where i think he's he's psychologically very robust in himself and doesn't feels he doesn't need to take those things so i'm gonna i'm gonna let this one go to seven actually which is when he really struggled against rosberg didn't he in that last season where he just felt that you know it becomes the world is against me not just this one guy is against me it it kind of it's like a black cloud that can take over and i still don't think he's quite discovered a way to to stop that from happening it's still a very high score six five (laughs) still still an impressive score you know this isn't now let's have a look glenn at team building so we're talking about i mean schumacher is the the ultimate 
driver that's always compared to the ability to galvanize the team around him work with them and just be the focal point pioneering wasn't he really exactly yeah which, which obviously Hamilton has become that focal point at Mercedes over the past few years yeah, I don't think anyone will ever be able to do it to Schumacher's level again, probably because no one will be given the opportunity to do it to his level, whether that's contractually or the amount of investment that follows in a team after you've joined it. You know, Ferrari's first thing with Schumacher was to get him in and was then to build out all the other pieces, all the other blocks came along afterwards. And I think when you're in that position that Michael was in, you're obviously going to think, right, you've brought in Ross Braun for me. You've brought in Rory Byrne. Um, Jean Todd's given me everything I want We've, every time you sign a driver every time a number two driver signs a contract he's very much the number two driver you will move him aside for me at every opportunity even if it's completely unnecessary in Austria in 2002 um, so I don't think <laughs> anyone will ever be able to quite do that again but I believe that as Ben said Schumacher was pioneering a lot of drivers the smart ones have tried to learn from that and, and do that again and we did see Vettel try to do it at Red Bull. I think we're going to see Verstappen now try to do it at Red Bull, particularly with the departure of Ricardo. And I think we've seen Hamilton perhaps focus more on that since Rosberg has gone. I don't know whether... It I probably wasn't possible, was it? Yeah, I wouldn't that say that he wasn't dynamic. trying while Rosberg was there, but I think he felt there were too many... Rosberg was almost too strong in too many areas behind the scenes for Hamilton to ever feel that he could get a decisive edge there. And if we look back to, it's amazing to think now that how well the team is built around him. If you consider some of the things he sort of said after Malaysia 2016, where it's often denied now, but he was basically implying that are the team against me here has this engine blown up on purpose, which is, which is ludicrous. And I'm sure now he would say that wasn't what he meant. And he was speaking, you know, heart on his sleeve type comments perhaps and the and result of the peculiar dynamic of the title fights consecutively being only intensely in that one team and yeah. you even had one mercedes fearing that one side of the garage was going against the other side of the garage and mixing up mechanics exactly, and key people yeah. to try that, and stop how that. divisive that fight became so you can't it wasn't possible then no it's not but i believe then, he's he's achieved it since then partly for i think working much harder to to keep everyone on side behind the scenes and partly through simply what he's doing on track. You know, he's led by example on the circuit. He's made it very clear that out of him and Bottas, he is the one that the team should be getting behind and should be backing. And he's the one that will deliver them world championships against a resurgent Ferrari. So I think he's gone about it in a different way to Schumacher. And obviously there are Schumacher comparisons to be made now that Lewis is on five championships and 71 wins, I believe. Um, but... He has still achieved it to some degree, I think. And, and that's that's very recent phenomenon. Um, Pat Simmons is quite interesting on this topic. I asked him, you know, how... Because to me, Hamilton seems like the natural heir to Schumacher, not just because of the, the statistics, but the all-round package, you know, the brilliant ability in the wet and the qualifying prowess and some of the team-building skills you mentioned, just the relentless winning machine that he's becoming. Uh, and, and Pat said, well, the, the Hamilton and Schumacher approaches are quite different. I mean, yes, all drivers subsequently, the, the clever ones, as you mentioned, after Schumacher realised the need to invest in this team-building element. But I think how his argument is that Hamilton really does it more by inspiration. Um, Schumacher was, and Pat's obviously worked with Schumacher, was totally focused on Formula 1. He put everything else in life aside to be 100% all about how can I 
do my best in front of every single detail. I'll test all the time. I'll drive all the time if I have to. I won't see my family. Total 100% focus. Hamilton, as we've discussed earlier, doesn't have that. I'm not saying he's not focused, but he has many more things going on in his life and uh, things he wants to pursue to get the most out of himself. So his way of team building won't be by default the same as Schumacher's. But I think he has learn that ability to uh, not criticize the team so much when things are going against you. I think after 2016, that was probably the idea of that. And he's realized that's not going to get me anywhere. We're in it together. I need to support them. He talks now constantly about how it's the greatest team that he believes in them, that we're in it together, that we need to work harder. And you can see he also makes the effort to go and thank all the members of the team, um, invest in them, um, you know, not take for granted all the work that they put in to, to put him in the position that he's able then to compete for wins and world championships. So I think he does it, but the the method and maybe the totalness of it is not quite on the Schumacher level. I think he's also, in terms of that team building, he's, I don't think this is a primary reason for doing it. I think it is sincere, but in terms of his, the way he treats Bottas and the relationship with Bottas, for example, in Baku, when Bottas had the, had the failure and Hamilton won and Lewis specifically before the podium tried to seek out Valtteri to say, look, sorry, that you deserved that. I remember yeah. Hamilton running past me in the paddock and saying, what are you, good? What are you doing? You should be on the podium. Um, and also with the Russia win and after he won the title, Lewis was very quick to praise, praise Bottas. And it's, it's interesting. So I think that, I think there's sincerity underpinning that, but it also works very well in terms of building a team that works for you. Cause that's also reinforcing the fact of, yeah, you're my mate. Yeah, I know you're there to help me when I need it. And it's sort of, rather than creating any of that fractiousness, that almost discourages any chance. I don't think Bottas is really one to play the Rosberg-style games anyway, but I think that almost sort of doubly confirms Bottas's position. And that's all what it's about. It's about making yourself the main focus and kind of bending everyone else to your will. You don't necessarily do that through brute force, but sometimes he does it through ability, are. doesn't he? I think that's exactly, really, yeah. he's like, I am the quickest guy here. I'm the best driver here. If you get behind me, I will achieve great things. If you try to get behind the other guy as well, or maybe slightly more than me in certain situations, things will unravel because I won't be able to get the best out of myself. But but it's also the kind of thing to say to the other guy, it's like, well, sort of hang on in my slipstream and you'll you'll get some good things happening happening as well. He probably didn't do that much with Kovalainen when they were together at McLaren. Kovalainen's arguably the only other kind of number two teammate he's ever had. And I think back then Lewis was just of the view that well, I'll just drive much faster than him and everyone will have to back me for that reason. One guy I think is worth mentioning here um, is Alonso because arguably this has been one of Alonso's greatest weaknesses in his F1 career. Yeah, Pat, Pat Simmons agreed with that as well. He said that um, it's, with Alonso, it's more about Team Fernando, not yeah. not the team itself. And he's, he's suffered for that. And that's the reason he's still only a two-time world champion. You know, he had Renault, Team Enstone was his team and he probably could have stayed there for for quite a long time. He had to go back there because after one year at McLaren, it, it all went wrong. One of the few bridges he didn't burn, basically, yeah, wasn't I think, it? The I think to re- Endstone. Yeah, exactly. But then, you know, the Ferrari years were just typified by, he was so busy talking himself up, I think, that he quite often would, was inadvertently almost, or probably, because he's a very intelligent man, deliberately slinging mm-hmm. the mud back at Ferrari. And in the end, there were just too many clashes behind the scenes and he lost his Ferrari opportunity. And then you end up and this is something that people tend to only be honest about once they're out of the paddock. And Rosberg is a good example of this. Just saying that the feeling in the paddock with a lot of the big teams is that you don't want Fernando Alonso because as brilliant as he is, he's not worth the hassle. Well, he's, he's no compromise, isn't he? That's the thing with Alonso. Part of his brilliance is that he wants 
100% out of everybody all the time because that's what he believes he gives and anything less is failure. But you can't always hold everyone in the organization to the same standard that you set yourself. You have to work with people's strengths and weaknesses. Nobody's perfect. Even Alonso's not perfect. Um, and that if you, But if you can't do that and you, you're not willing to compromise sometimes, that can just create tension that you can't get past. Um, Hamilton is, is probably slightly better perhaps as a result of his more emotional character he's able to perhaps understand better that you know people have their bad days and you you just need to understand and get past that so that elevates him probably above Alonso in the team building the team building stakes so number out of 10 for team building Glenn seven I don't know why I asked it as such a high-pitched question I'd say seven um I would say yeah, I think seven is probably fair. I've got no advance on that. Okay, I go with that. I, I would have personally lent towards eight, but I'm going with the consensus there. I think I think, I think he, he's got. I think he's got very strong at that now. I think he's done it less consciously and more just by being good in the car, which you could you could argue is maybe better than the Schumacher method of going. All right, if you're going to structure it this way, you've got to make me the number one driver, and we don't want to have any distractions. Hamilton hasn't made himself number one at Mercedes by by contract. He's as far as we know, he's made him his. He's made himself number one at Mercedes just by force of ability and. and I think it's more the, the reason I'm not thinking of a higher score is that I think he's just he's evolved to a point where he knows that's part of the job and he takes it quite seriously. But I don't think he necessarily feels the need to devote an overly large proportion of his time no. or effort towards it. So he's and it's not central to what makes him a no, Formula One driver, is no, it? He, no, in the way it was for Schumacher. No, he's respectful of the importance of it and the importance of the people around him. But I'd still also believe that, yeah, particularly since he's had Bottas as a teammate, he's relying on his ability to do a lot of his talking for him as well, which is no bad thing. Up seven out of ten, fair, fair score. There we go, seven, we, we are agreed. So, Ben, penultimate category, raising... Penultimate? Penultimate, oh, yeah. Wow. Almost there. <laughs> we're but getting there. We're There's talking... a lot to being a top Formula 1 driver, isn't there? Yeah, well, we could break it down into... into oh, this, this could go on for many, many days, but now we've stuck to wait. Oh. This one's entitled Raising Standards. Now, that applies to this kind of theory that the the kind of the the true great drivers raise the bar for what a Grand Prix driver is. So you, you sort of have this plot. You talk about Fangio, Moss, Clark, Jackie Stewart, you know, the, the, the ones who redefined what it is to be a kind of Grand Prix driver. That I think is a, is an important part of the, the kind of the, 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 the absolute greats. It's difficult really in the midst of it to, to judge that, but let's have a bit of a go at that, Ben. Do you think he's a driver who is, who is changing the way other drivers work in terms of his approach or is he a, is he a slightly, un, is he a unique case? I think actually it's a tricky one. I think probably out of those two options, he's more towards the unique case category I think I mean, he if you asked him I think he would say his inspiration was Senna not all drivers have you know a template they follow but I get the feeling that that's the one that Lewis has tried to follow and you know this all about being as fast as you can be um, leaving no quarter giving no quarter to your rivals but I think he's evolved his approach over time and I don't think there's really one specific element that you would ascribe to Hamilton and say, oh, well, that's, you know, that's the thing that defines him. I guess part of what makes him such a great driver is there's so many elements to it that he is either excellent at, as we've rated him 10 out of 10, or really good at. You know, there's, no, there's nothing really we're talking about that you know, you'd score him really poorly on. 
I'm not sure necessarily what areas he's pioneered. It's almost the the kind of the modern elite sporting terminology is marginal gains, isn't it? And I think Lewis has looked to do that across the board, which is why when we were talking about the team building, my argument was that it's not necessarily something he's especially focused on. But that's because, yeah, there aren't really any areas where he has had to say, right, I'm going to devote more of my time and effort on this than anything else. I think Lewis has believed that I have to keep making everything a little bit better around everything about me as a driver on track and off the track. And he's been quite keen to push that when he's at the end of his 2017 um, title winning year. And since he's won this year's championship, I think he's been very strong to say, as as Ben said earlier, his two best seasons in, uh, <laughs> in F1. And that's because he keeps raising the bar and he's not, it isn't that he's there going, right, I need to become a better qualifier. So I'll just focus on qualifying and that will make me a better world champion. It's everything, isn't it? It is everything. And and that comes back to what he's doing in the car, his race craft, his, his qualifying, all the categories that we've been over already, really, his mental state, um, how he spends his time but at he, the track and away from the track. And he's also doing stuff, as you mentioned, outside of Formula One. You know, he's trying to, in some ways, transcend the sport. So in that way, he's, he's setting a, a template not in terms of a specific thing you need to do to be a good Formula One driver or a great Formula One driver that's not been done before, but actually trying to go beyond that. And how can I be the guy that carries Formula One on my shoulders and takes it to new places that inspires new people to become fans of it? Um, If you're going to define maybe one area of Hamilton's game that does stand out above all others, I've said one, now I'm going to say two when I think about it some more. Qualifying has to be one area of supreme strength i mean trying to break down exactly why hamilton's such a great qualifier is going to be very difficult but you know he has the pole record i think that's the most center-esque element of hamilton like he really does prioritize saturdays i think or he makes sure that he gives his absolute best in qualifying almost every time and some of the laps that we've seen from him have been otherworldly and he he always talks about the the inspiration of senna doing an otherworldly pole lap at monaco and you you've I feel like Hamilton is the driver who most replicates that uh, with any regularity. This brings me to something that I've kind of got in mind, which is we talk about raising standards and changing the the way you do things. There, We've seen this, and this does go back to Senna, this trait for champions being utterly ruthless and being prepared to do everything. I think it ran through Senna and Schumacher, yes. which, which is that sort of become the template. And I think not blaming those two exclusively, but I do think we've seen in racing in general – on-track ethics become a little bit questionable. I think there are elements to which some of the stewarding and what's allowed in terms of moves across track, that kind of thing, have fed into that. But I think what Hamilton has been able to do is show that actually, do you know what, you can win big and win clean because he doesn't, he he makes a virtue of that, the, there's a right way to do this. Yes. Whereas almost the, the sort of Senna Schumacher thing was, no, all that matters is doing it how you do it doesn't matter. And I wonder whether this isn't necessarily something new, but it's almost a throwback to sort of say to people, Mm. I don't think we'll know this for 10, 15, 20 years, but could it be that he's the driver that actually undoes some of the stuff? You know, I like a ruthless driver. He's willing to do anything as much as, as much as the next person, but actually you don't need to screw people over to be successful. And I think actually maybe there'll be people looking at Hamilton and say, actually, that's the guy I want to be the guy who wins and is a good guy. Yeah. He's stunningly quick, but he wins in the right way. And uh, that kind of becomes a beacon for what, uh, what drivers should be doing. That's, I mean, that's very vague. It's just an impression. I think it's a good one though, Ed, because it, it isn't, you wouldn't, 
associate him with Senna and Schumacher on the sort of driving ethics side of things. You, there aren't many famous Hamilton chops or, or dirty manoeuvres or anything like that. And <laughs> this isn't meant to be as much of a criticism as it sounds like, but I think any perhaps good work that Lewis is doing on that front over the next 10 years or so, Verstappen could undo some of that. But not because he's going to be dirty, but I think he'll be back to Schumacher levels of pushing everything to the right edge. Um, and, you know, maybe we'll have more Verstappen rules like we had for the moving under braking a couple of years ago. We'll have to come in to clarify that sort of thing. And what I think we must remember is that F1 on-track racing wasn't regulated in the same way that it is now during the majority of Schumacher's career and certainly during Senna's career. And I think if um, if more of the strict stewarding that we have now and, and almost, I was going to say clear black and white rules, but there's nothing clear and black and white about F1 stewarding, is there? But if we'd had more rules and more definitions of what you can and can't do, then maybe the racing would have been different during their eras and they wouldn't have stood out in the way that they do for how far they pushed it. But we'll see. But on, in terms of raising standards, I think Hamilton has got a lot better particularly across the board in the last two years. And I actually wonder if that's one of the reasons he has suddenly got this seemingly decisive edge over Vettel. Because I wonder if he's found an improvement. Let's, let's assume that everyone keeps improving until they get maybe a bit too old or lose the motivation and then they start to drop off. If Hamilton and Vettel are both still on the ascent to becoming the perfect F1 driver, I actually think Lewis has picked up his rate of improvement and is, if anything is moving away from Vettel a little bit. And I think that's why we're seeing more mistakes from Vettel and we're seeing more more erratic stuff from him, whether it is in the car or out of the car, because he's seeing Lewis reaching these new heights and Vettel probably thought that they were on a par a couple of years ago. And right now it doesn't feel like they quite are. No, it, you're right. I think it does seem like Vettel, that Vettel's on a slightly lower level to Hamilton. I think it's really been a case of Hamilton putting all the different pieces of the jigsaw together. It's not one thing over the other. It's marginal gains, as you mentioned earlier, Glenn. It's, okay, I've got to keep my relentlessness in qualifying. I've, I've got to be really on it in the wet because I'm really strong at that. But I've also got to use better judgment in the races. I've learned from 2016, I've got to make sure I make the most of my bad weekends and don't go off the boil and just give up or not that he would give up, but, you know, take as many points as I can get. He's, he's thought about his approach to training, how he maintains his energy through what is becoming an ever more grueling calendar. And that doesn't get easier as you get older. So he's focusing on how do I spend my time? He's got the team to buy into that process. How do I um, subjugate my teammate so that he's not causing me problems and stress the whole time? That gives me more energy. What about my diet? He's become a vegan gradually, I think, over the last couple of years. Um, that's given him more energy and he feels stronger and healthier in himself. It's all these things. And then, okay, I'm going to go outside of Formula 1 and do more creative things that then make me feel even better about myself and and mean that I'm not just you know stuck in the Formula 1 grind which it can become when you've been in it for so long all these things put together have given us the Hamilton of the last two years and particularly this year who he is as you say I think a, a level above the rest so what number are we putting on this so we've got the two elements here we've got that ability to aggregate the marginal gains and just raise the level up in that regard and also this uh, my my pet theory of the winning clean and that you don't need to be completely ruthless so i think this is pointing towards quite a high score a high score actually this is a 10 for me yeah i, I think, think that the the progress he has made in in the last couple of years and the way it's it's separated him from vettel you know if we we're looking at drivers that define this era of f1 lewis is uh, head and shoulders above the rest now on his own i believe 
Yeah, ten. Well, our final category is a is a tricky one because it's it's there in black and white. We're going to look at statistics, Glenn. Now, Hamilton has seventy one wins. That's second in the all time list. Schumacher, ninety one, of course. That's a win rate of thirty one point three percent for Hamilton versus twenty nine point seven for Schumacher for whatever that means. Five titles for Hamilton, seven for Schumacher. I mean, clearly he's behind Schumacher at this stage, but he's kind of level pegging with him in terms of progression through career. And no 10 out of 10 this time. So, I mean, well, the trajectory is on. There's easily another couple of titles there, you, you could say. So the weight of statistics is is kind of gradually building towards Hamilton being statistically right up, right up the top. Well, this is crazy, really. I mean, when he became a four-time world champion last year, I think it was the first time that people started talking about these records um, and can he get to Schumacher's records? I think by then he had Senna's pole record already, didn't he? He's got that in Canada of 2017. And at that point I thought, no, they're still too far away. He's not going to keep relentlessly winning this many races um, a season. And at some point Vettel or a Red Bull or somebody is going to beat him to a championship. And and then it's maybe just going to derail this relentlessness of accumulating even ever greater statistics. We're a year on from that. And this time when the question got raised, I had a look at those numbers that you were just talking about. And now I'm sitting there going, he's going to do that. You know, what, he so can do it, can't he? Now? It's basically, if we assume that he does his traditional, and I hope he doesn't, but he does his traditional go off the boil after winning the championship. He's got to win 10 races per season over the next two years to match the wins record. And there's every chance that if he's done, if he's done that, he's probably going to have two more championships in his pocket. And with relative regulation stability until 2021 we've got the, the the front wing change is the biggest thing for next year but if Mercedes stay on top of that I, I think it, it you do think that there's no reason for him or Mercedes to go off the boil now and to suddenly stop winning that many races per season and being in in the thick of it so it does suddenly to me because I was sort of dismissing it last year it feels like these are achievable and I, I do think he's going to at least match them now And then I wonder, just imagine if he gets to the end of 2020 and he has bang on match them and he's got 91 wins and seven world championships and he's got to talk to Mercedes about a new contract. I mean, you'd sign a one year deal, wouldn't you? Yeah. You you think he could, if he can, if he can do what Glenn's just described and win two more championships. I've made it sound so easy, haven't I? Yeah. Just rattle those out. Then you've got to go for the record, haven't you? Because then statistically you go down as the greatest of all time as well as having all the other things we've discussed qualitatively. The things standing in his way, really, are Vettel and Ferrari, but we've kind of answered that question. I think the period you were talking about where you thought, oh, it's, you know, it's still too far, we were all expecting Vettel and Ferrari to get one over Hamilton. And I, I think, think that's because we thought that Ferrari had thrown that championship away last year, not Vettel. So we assumed that if it all went, went to plan this year, then maybe Vettel could do it. Yeah, we, we feel differently about Vettel now, potentially. Yeah, exactly, that's the key thing. So Vettel was with his big obstacle and the jury was out after 17, but I think emphatically after this year, it's not. You know, Vettel could have won both of those championships and won neither. So you go, okay, he's got Vettel and Ferrari covered. Then there's Max Verstappen and Red Bull Honda. They could potentially take him on, but that depends on... Honda massively and there's no reason to expect in the next couple of years really that even though Red Bull are talking them up now that's going to happen so you kind of bear that in mind I think if if they do by some 
I don't want to say miracle, but it's probably going to be a miracle, uh, get into that game, then that changes things massively because, you know, Verstappen will be the, the new young guy. He will take wins away from Hamilton if he's in, if he's given half a chance. So the only other thing left standing is really can Mercedes maintain this relentless ability to keep producing or at least developing it into the best car on the grid each year. Um, I get the sense that maybe they'll be quite inspired by the fact that, you know, they're close to making it five consecutive championship doubles. And that is Ferrari Schumacher territory, isn't it? And there's, there's got to be some serious motivation in that organization to go beyond that and mark yourself down as a team, but perhaps the greatest team in statistically, at least in the history of Formula One. So if Lewis can continue to ride off the back of that collectively, there's, increasingly fewer reasons to believe there's anything to stop him from at least matching Schumacher if not surpassing him well it's an interesting one because I think matching and surpassing are different questions I did a piece on this on Autosport Plus where I had a look at it and basically you've got relatively stable regulations there are some aero changes next year which could be disruptive but Hamilton's contracted for two more years the next major rule change other than the, the tweaks for next year is, is 2021 20, so you kind of look at it and you think well actually there's a very good chance Hamilton will win two more titles and if he wins two more titles he's going to be getting close to Schumacher's record and may even be able to do 20 wins in two seasons plus whatever he gets at the end of this season to do that but you always you look at what are the disruptive forces you've touched on a few on on a few there which is other rising forces you know your team goes off the boil maybe you make a bad decision about a team move well he's made one team move decision in his uh, in his Grand Prix career and it's absolutely been spot on so far you know you look at other things motivations decline from drivers sometimes uh, McHagnan's a good example of that no sign of that well I think that you know stuff we mentioned earlier about him changing his approach to all those off-track activities diet training extracurricular activities that's if that's given him much more chance of prolonging the same level of intensity and yeah, motivation there's, there's, in the car. There's no sign the of any of that years, dropping it? off, and that links into the question of age. If he gets too old, doing it, there's no sign of that happening. He's going to, if he wants to, he'll be able to be in this zone where he can win championships. And you look at there's random factors like um, injury or or death. I mean, I cite that because there are several multiple champions who were cut down in there in their prime, Ayrton Senna, Alberto Ascari, yeah. Jim Clark. Um, vanishingly small chance of something like that happening but it's it, it's not zero and it would be wrong to suggest there isn't that that sort of danger or you've got these other factors like politics or uh, you know these these other these these things that can come over the horizon completely unexpectedly mm. and that that's the problem because no sport ex- exists in a steady state and if everything stays the same then Hamilton probably wins as many championships as he does more seasons, quite frankly, because, you know, he's meeting the challenge. He's meeting the challenge of the Verstappens. Mm. And as long as he's still kind of on that upward curve or at, at, on his way to the peak or at the peak, he'll he'll be fine. But It's the unknown curveballs, isn't it? I mean, 2021's if- a long time away. And, uh, and, and you know, Hamilton could be absolutely ready to win an eighth title in 2021. It might be taken away from him, the opportunity through all manner of things that he has no influence on. Yeah, and, he, and he might not win the next two because of things we, we can't think yeah. about. I mean, you talk about no sport staying the same. If we turn to Glenn Freeman's beloved Tottenham Hotspur, I mean, they... they bear, we? <laughs> well, <laughs> I think it's quite, quite a good example of the sense that they didn't really change their team too much from last season to this and don't seem to be as strong because other teams have improved or found new ways to do things. And I suppose that's that's the area we just can't, be sure about Hamilton Mercedes might feel oh we've got everything we need to just keep on winning keep on winning but you just never know what's around the corner you you just don't know if 
Red Bull, Honda and Verstappen could magically just bring it all together and then maybe not next year, but the year after, they are just the team to beat. And, you know, Mercedes haven't been perfect, have they, since the current regulations came in. Both seasons, they've had to work quite hard to get that car into a position where it can see off Ferrari. It's not like they, it's not like the early years of the V6 formula where they were just untouchable. So it's, it's, it's getting harder as the, as it, as it, as it, as it, as the fight's prolonged. We've seen them challenged operationally, haven't we? And if they've had a weakness since the opposition's got stronger, it's probably been strategically. You know, the, the errors this year have tended to be from the pit wall, it seems. And, there are times, yeah, we've had in 2017, the car was described sometimes as a diva and they couldn't get it into the performance window. So there are signs that, yeah, Mercedes aren't unbreakable. But I think in terms of a team constantly improving and ignoring the Tottenham Hotspur reference entirely, Mercedes have probably <laughs> proven since 2014 that they do have that drive to keep going and to keep bettering themselves. And I think Ben's made a very good point about the, the chance to eclipse the Schumacher, Todd, Braun, Ferrari era for achievements with that being on the horizon that's incredible motivation for all the people that work at that team big nugget isn't it yeah talking about schumacher ed when you were doing the performance uh, the percentages earlier about hamilton and schumacher's records and their performance during their career does that include schumacher's second career when he came back yes it does and i think you have you have to kind of include that um because it is part of his career. But yeah, there is this very clear change and obviously that... Yeah, because I, I feel that... They skew it, don't they? They do, because we're really... We're comparing Lewis Hamilton with Michael Schumacher, the driver that retired in 2006, for me. The guy who came back after that was not was not the same. Um, and I think uh, Lewis is 10 or so starts behind where Schumacher was when he retired the first time. Um so to beat the records, he's going to have to do it over the course of more races than Schumacher had. And I think that's that's potentially important and something that's worth considering. And I don't know if in anyone's eyes that perhaps skews the achievements or brings Schumacher's achievements back into the discussion a little bit more. But I think I think that's worth raising. I disagree, Ed, with your belief that we do have to consider Schumacher's second career. That's For me, that's a, a third Schumacher in Formula 1. You had Michael 1. Ralph and then Michael too. <laughs> no, I mean that is a an obvious way to look at it. And I, you, you, Schumacher's win rate moves significantly above Ham, above Hamilton's. It goes to I don't know thirty six, thirty seven percent, something like that. Well, he off, made off his, the top he... of my top of my head. So I think it's kind of you do. I think you do when you're talking subjectively about this have to do. But when you're looking at the raw numbers, you kind of have to include it because that was that was part of his career ultimately. Um, I agree with Glenn though. I think that they skew it unnecessarily we're com- comparing like for like you're comparing first era Michael Schumacher to current Lewis Hamilton. I think the main difference is simply that Schumacher made his key move earlier. You know, he did, he did, uh, how many was it? Two, three. So it's four two, full three, seasons. Four, five, four, yeah. And plus the, the, plus bits the, of plus the extra races. Whereas ha- I think Hamilton stayed at McLaren. Six years he did. Six yeah. years. Yeah. So Schumacher got out and then built the winning, well, was part of the winning machine of Ferrari. Subsequently, Hamilton just took a little bit longer to to Schumacher get into his, into his right Benetton situation on top as well. Yeah, because Lewis had been a bit all over the place for a couple of years at McLaren by the point that he decided he'd had enough there. He made a very very good decision there. I was <laughs> inspired the, the McLaren just at the point where that that was kind of that that gearbox failure while leading in Singapore was kind of the thing that made him go, oh, this is pointless. So he's made, he's making up ground, isn't he? Because he's yeah. had probably a couple, well, a year and a half more in the wilderness, if you like, of a team not quite 
being there and Schumacher didn't have that. Well, I, I've crunched another number here, actually, and we are talking about statistics, so I'll assume that I'm allowed to cut you off, Ed, to bring in another stat. I believe that Schumacher drove what you could consider 11, to be 11 potentially championship-winning cars, and I think Hamilton has driven nine so far. So I think... Seven from 11 and five from nine. And I guess, are you counting yeah. things like the 12 McLaren? Yes, I am. I'll give them to our listeners because they can't see my, my notes that I've scribbled down. So I've given Hamilton the 07 McLaren. Yeah, fair. Almost uh, did. Yeah, exactly. Got to the last race. The 08, which he did win with. I've given him the 10 and the 12 McLarens because he was in that championship fight in 10. So you have to consider yeah, he that went, car. He, he down he could have won that championship. I, I should say on the 12 McLaren, that car was quick enough. It wasn't really Hamilton's fault that operationally no, I, and I, reliability agree. problems. Yeah. So. But he did finish the season as the best car, didn't he? I believe so, yeah. And then obviously um, all the Mercedes in the V6 hybrid era, so 14 onwards. Mm-hmm. And for Schumacher, obviously 94 and 95 Benettons. But then I'm giving him the 97... 98 Ferraris because he took that to the last race both times. I mean, it's, it, I've written down the 99 Ferrari. It's a I bit think you harsh have to, to count include that. it. It was it, it, he would have won that championship, I think certainly. Yeah, but without not, the leg break. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So a bit harsh to maybe include that. And then you've got the 2000 all the way through to 04 Ferraris that he did win a championship with. And then you've got the 06 car, which was definitely in there with, in the fight with Alonso and Renault. So that's how I've come up with nine for Hamilton and eleven for Schumacher. What does that work out when you divide them? So that's slightly in Schumacher's favour then, wouldn't it be? Um, Seven from 11 and five from nine, wasn't it? The yeah. comparison, so. Yeah, because they both had so four, both they didn't four failures, if you yeah. want to call them that. So it's very, very similar. Which would automatically give Schumacher a better strike rate. Yes, yeah. I think it's about 55% for um, for Hamilton and then seven from 11 is about 60. Furious calculation going on here. Yeah. So it's definitely worked out in his head. Yes, definitely didn't use my calculator just to make sure I got the good right. If I thought to do it in my head, I'll just, I'll just make it up. Um, I mean, it's an interesting, interesting way of looking at it. It's always, it's the, the limitation of statistics. They tell you a story, but there's a lot, of, there's a lot of different factors. Yeah. And then there's the reasons why you did or didn't win certain championships. And I think you can certainly say, I'd say 12 and yeah, the 99. <laughs> Ferrari, you know, that he had the car but not the leg to, uh, to win the championship, <laughs> you could say. I mean, ultimately, as well, as well you, you want to, you want Hamilton's career to finish and then to do a fair comparison, look back, because we're judging Th- this is a, a finite Michael Schumacher career or two finite Michael Schumacher careers, depending on your interpretation, whereas Hamilton is still still going. So, yeah. the, but the numbers are in sight, aren't they, ultimately? It'll, exactly. be, down, it'll be down to to him and Mercedes over the next few years to so just rating, keep the machine going. rating the statistics out of 10, which is a bit tricky. I think it's a nine, isn't it? In the, yeah, he, I think a nine. He, he's there in second in yeah. terms of the titles won. He's got the most polls. He's got the second most wins. So, yeah, just he hasn't got seven titles and 91 wins. So he, so he kind of has Get to Get on with right. it, Lewis. So what have we got? Well, well, that total, we've got speed 10, racecraft 9, technical 8, confidence 10, Psychological strength, seven. Team building, seven. Raising the standards, ten. And statistics, nine, which adds up to 70 out of 80, which I consider to be a pretty pretty high mark. I don't think there are many drivers in F1 history, including a lot of world champions, who'd get a score that high if we did this for all of them. It would take a long time to do it for all of them. I'm not suggesting we're about to do that. Well, there's 32 drivers who won the world championship. We've done the first one. So now we will move on to Denny Holm. No, that's, uh, that's uh, <laughs> And <that>. I'm out. <laughs> yeah, uh, ultimately, 
what you've got here is a picture of a very rounded driver. His lowest mark is a seven. He's got three tens. So a driver who either excels or is very good in, in every category, which tells you of a, a rounded driver. I think the thing about multiple world champions is take Nico Rosberg, who we've talked about a lot as a counterpoint. I think Nico, he kind of need everything to go right to win a title. And he did very and something well. something to go wrong for his team. Exactly. And he yeah. did everything right in 16 and some things went on for Hamilton and bang, he got the championship. But he, I think Nico knew he threaded the needle and it took a lot out of him as well. And so that's that's the difference, I think, between the guys who can nick a world championship who are there. Still fantastic drivers. But that ability to just relentlessly do it. I mean, 71 pole positions. It's, 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 it's in all areas as well, Sorry, isn't it? Uh, 81 pole positions and 71 wins. These are absolutely crazy numbers, really. Yeah. Aren't they? Just, just that sheer ability just to keep racking them up. There's world champions who won three world championship races, admittedly, in less starts. but and in, and in all different types of conditions as well. And something we didn't really touch on earlier is you know, Hamilton's ability in the wet, you know, some of the some of the the races he I and feel the pole like positions he's the, been able to nick in wet conditions off you know stunning drivers, but he just finds something that no one else can, and that well, elevates well, this him. Well, this is a category again. that we could have done. I mean, he's kind of fell into speed and racecraft a little yeah. bit, but I think he's won the last nine rain affected Grand Prix. He, give him a ten. New category. <laughs> rain, rain form. Rain Tenure. Meister. But, you know, he, the, the, the 2008 British Grand Prix victory in the wet at Silverstone was one of the great wet weather wins. Utterly dominant. It was, I think, 68 seconds he won. Yeah, it was, it could have been, phenomenal. Could have been a lot more. Absolutely fantastic. And then you see... His pole lap in Hungary this year. Yeah, yeah. And then um, look at his pace in Germany in the in the wet. Winning when, from 10th, was it, on the grid after the penalty? Did he come yeah, through yeah, in that yeah, race? 14, yeah, like that. Even lower, so well yeah, down, yeah. So. And then... You know, Hungary, which should have been a Ferrari track because it was a wet qualifying. Hamilton got it on pole. So yeah, in that in that situation, he's he's absolutely stunning. So well, that Germany race is Schumacher esque, isn't it? it? Reminds me yeah. of Schumacher in Belgium in '95, starting 16th and just flying through the field as others capitulate, throw themselves off the track. It's that very similar in that regard, aren't they? Hamilton in the wet is is right up no, there exactly. and always has been as well. That's not yeah. really something he's had to develop over the years. He, you know, he was fantastic in the wet long before he even got to F1. Well, this is the frightening thing about Lewis Hamilton. He came into Formula One, like the, probably the greatest ever rookie season, yeah. almost winning the championship. He was a fantastic driver then. And then we've got all these areas of, oh, he's got improved a lot on that, improved a lot on that. And it's like, how it's good remarkable. do you, how good yeah, do you want to yeah. be? You're already he's got better and better. You're already it? when you started better than, 95% of those who started a world championship race. So it's always, it's frightening the fact that he's, he's, He's gone on for a long time, hugely successful, and just just got better. What I mean, what what a driver! Who knows what we'll say when he's when he's retiring? You know, the, the well, we'll be, we'll be wondering who can go beyond his statistical numbers. Well, it always feels it's crazy statistics that no one will ever beat. Well, exactly, no one was ever going to beat Michael Schumacher's yeah. records. Hamilton might. No one was going to beat Ricardo Patrese's number of starts at two hundred fifty six. Brilliant thing about sport, isn't it? You yeah, know, you mentioned bar. it doesn't stand still and the, it always moves forward and eventually the bar gets raised. Exactly. Well, and podcasts can't stand still and we should move forward towards the end now before we uh, bore everyone. But hopefully we've uh, we've created a little bit of insight into uh, into Hamilton as a driver. So uh, head to autosport.com. Lots of uh, news on Formula 1 the rest of the world of motorsport on there. Our plus subscriber area where the world's best motorsport journalists doing columns, opinions, features, interviews, everything with uh, with the big names from motorsport. Check out sister title F1 Racing Magazine out monthly. Ben Anderson celebrating that, getting a, a mention. And also motorsport.com. And if you fancy a flutter, download the Pit Stop Betting app. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast.
Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Social Podcast Network. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.